Welcome to Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights because your rights matter. Today we're joined again by Maurice Davis, Mike Brown, Kerry Watson, and Lee James. We started a discussion about recruiting and policing offline, and today we want to continue that discussion and share it with you. I want to capture this shortage of um, recruits across the country. And last week I asked Mike to jump off on that, so I'm going to start there again. If you can just kind of give us a to-date sort of a picture of what's happening across the country in terms of recruiting uh, candidates. Okay, I, I can talk about some of the things that I've seen from the East Coast to the Pacific Northwest, and that's conversations with sheriffs about the possibility of lowering standards because of the recruitment shortage. And uh, there's one a very large agency that I'm aware of that spent uh, upwards of a million dollars uh, on recruiting uh, with little to no result. What is causing the shortage? Well, it depends. Um, I know one location, for example, that I spoke with, they were particularly interested in minorities. Mm. However, uh, because it's a uh, rural area, and the minority population is relatively small in that, in that um, region, uh, that creates additional challenges. I, I did talk to them about the salary and the salary is very decent for that area, but to recruit minorities, let's say hypothetically uh, Oregon, to recruit minorities to go to Oregon, it, it presents a different set of challenges by itself that, that compounds the initial shortage of uh, personnel that they have. Now, is it, uh, in, in terms of, well, in, in, in that limited case, is it because of qualification or is it because of interest or is it because not, you know, the benefits aren't that great? I mean, from what I've seen, it's not a pay and benefit issue. Hmm. It may be qualification. Uh, I know one sheriff that I spoke to, uh, the issue was drug use. Mm -hmm. And again, another sheriff talked about actually lowering the standards. But when you lower the standards, what does that mean big picture wise? So, I mean, other than, uh, than drug use, I mean, Lee, you want to jump in? Have you been hearing anything about the, in, the issues surrounding the lack of recruitment across the country and what are the issues that we're looking at? Law enforcement in general is um, under a microscope, not just for this year and the George Floyd incident or um, any of the other incidents that occurred this year. But I mean, for a long time, we've had a lot of negative light on law enforcement. And now that there's so much, so much more attention on law enforcement, I think that it turns, it would turn somebody off. If I was a young person trying to look for a career um, and law enforcement was an option I don't know if I would be really interested in joining any organization at this point because of the scrutiny that law enforcement is receiving. I think that's one of the reasons. It's been hard to recruit because, especially in, in a metropolitan area like Washington, D.C., you have so many law enforcement agencies. You have local, you have municipal, you have state, you have federal, and you know, people shop around and they look for the best deal. If you're smart, you're looking for the best option for your family. And so in an area like Washington, the DC market, it's very competitive. It's been that way, but with the added scrutiny on law enforcement, 
I think um, it becomes even more of a struggle to try to find um, candidates. There are a lot of people from other fields because of the economic downturn that we're experiencing who are looking for um, opportunities and it could be law enforcement. However, you got to remember that a lot of those people, wherever fields that they're coming from, looking for the best benefits, looking for the best op you know, options for their family, etc. Um, and so law enforcement is going to have to change their dynamic of how they recruit, who they recruit. I, I recall what uh, Mike was saying a few minutes ago that a lot of agencies are trying to recruit minorities. Yeah, that's, that's fine and dandy, but there's only so many that are qualified or could be qualified to, you know, enter into law enforcement. Um, and then the, again, the competition, it really depends on where you are. It becomes more difficult to look for or to recruit good candidates nowadays. Can I ask um, uh, Lee a question real quick? Yep, so Lee made the comment about minorities and saying not a lot of us are qualified. Does that speak to a broader issue within the community or does it speak more to the, the law enforcement standard itself? It could be the law enforcement standard. I'll give you an example. One county that I'm, I'm familiar with has what they call a public safety recruiting uh, arm. So they recruit for not only police um, and they do the backgrounds, not only for police, but for corrections, for fire department, for the sheriff's department. And, and I'm not so certain that for law enforcement in particular, if that's the best strategy, I realize from a manager's perspective, it's, there's an economical piece to that, but I'm not so, so sure that that's the best strategy. So when I, when I talk about minorities and qualifications, it, it depends on where, what the agency requires, what they're looking for. It's hard to say, but I think a lot of law enforcement agencies in particular really need to examine their strategy for recruiting and start, you know, looking at maybe trying to hire um, a re um, marketing agencies in order to try to, you know, change their strategy to try to attract people. Let me let, let Carrie and uh, Mo jump in here a bit, but I'm going to overlay it with this. Um, so there's a couple of things I know right now that are impacting recruitment and when we start talking about lowering standards. One of the things impacting uh, young recruits is the issue of drug use. Fitness levels, being able to pass a, a physical test for um, entry, um, financial debt, which is one of the things that you look at um, in recruiting. There's some complaints about the length of time to process uh, candidates. And I'm going to overlay that with the question that Mike asked, uh, Kerry and Mo, about whether it's a larger problem about qualification, and especially when you're looking at minority candidates. So if I could jump in. You know, I think it's, it's simple economics as well. It's supply and demand. Right now, police departments are in a place where they do not have enough supply and they are looking for officers. So you start thinking about what, it, what is the reason for that? Um, particularly in this time, in this environment, in our society, I can't think of, in, I can't think of very many people who would want to be police officers at all. I had the benefit of speaking to a college class at the University of Maryland a couple of weeks ago. And I actually asked the question of this class of 30, I guess, um, anybody on this class, political science class interested in going into law enforcement, not a single one of them raised their hands. And they were of you know, different demographics. They were you know, black, white, um, somewhere in the military. 
But right now at this period of time in our society, people don't want to be cops. And you think about who mm -hmm. usually becomes a police officer to begin with. Police, policing, much like uh, fire, it often tends to run in a family. So you find parents and grandparents that were police officers before them. Well, in Black communities in particular, that's not the case. There is no history of that. I think of my own children. There is no way that I would encourage them to be a police officer right now. I don't know that I would ever encourage them to be a police officer. But at this particular time in our society, there's absolutely no way that I would want to do that. And what could possibly be uh, pro provided to them to make me feel more comfortable about it or to encourage them to do it. I don't know what that thing is. I don't know that it's money. Um, I think it has a lot to do with just how society is treating law enforcement at this particular time, how the career is, is seen. You know, I think all of us recognize that there's some great benefit to being a police officer. The, the career is 25 years now. Um, you can retire at a relatively young age. But when you also look at the dangers associated with it, especially in certain police departments where people would have the opportunity to work, you know, the, the way that you treat it once you're there, I don't know that there's any great incentive for anyone to want to become a police officer in 2020. I can't deny um, what everybody has said. Um, one of the things that I think is, is a problem is uh, how we police are, are, are being marketed now and you know, there's political pressure on police departments and chiefs. And one of the biggest things that we see right now is how it's a political football on the national scene. If you are a police officer, you're viewed as part of a government, you're loved, or at least said that you're loved by the administration. However, the administration's view of what police should be doing, um, you know, President Trump came in saying that um, if uh, you want to rough a person up a little bit while you're putting them in the car, it's okay. And so that is going, that image and that thought is going nationally, given everything else that's happened with the number of um, injustices that have taken place, uh, police is not an attractive position, especially for minorities. Now, in order to change that, we're going to have to change how people view police, which means police, that old model that we all know, that's got to change. And how it's got to change is we got to get back to being servants as opposed to aggressors. And I think that's driving a lot of young people away because uh, most young people don't want to be a part of something now that looks like it's going to either um, depress someone or that may be racial. Um, and that's what the police, you know, that's the image of policing right now, which is unfortunate because we all know that in a lot of cases, that's not true. But that's the image that has, has been sent forth and um, people have bought into that. And so why would you want to work for a place where you go to work, you got pressure from your chief, you got pressure from the government, you got tremendous amount of liability if you touch someone um, and um, your image as a police officer is that you are not an honest person, you're not a good person, and you're there to suppress uh, people as opposed to assist them. Well, this brings up an interesting uh, point because the, the common thread I hear going uh, right now is the profession is not a desirable one.
I can correct that, Reggie. It's, it's not the profession is not desirable. It's the image of the profession. Okay. And, and that goes to my point. So I, when I look at, you know, obviously the, right now your recruits are going to be probably millennials. Um, currently, there's at least three generations in law enforcement, boomers, uh, Gen X, and now you have millennials coming into the, to the organizations. It's interesting that the things that millennials want in a profession are the things that can be offered within law enforcement. And some of the things that they have listed, it's like they want work that offers meaning and purpose. They want to be able to use their individual talents. They favor practical, sensible action to achieve results. They want to be valued personally. They want to be part of a team. They need a sense of belonging. So a lot of things that millennials want in a career can be found in law enforcement. But we're not getting that, that recruitment base because of the image. And I guess, is the image more of what's going on? Because if you go back and you look at even ads for, um, for hiring, there's always a SWAT team kicking in a door. One of those militarized sort of uh, responses that was intended to attract um, folks. And so one is, has it been a, a lapse in kind of looking ahead, thinking about the people that we want to recruit and adjusting a recruitment strategy? And two, have we not done a good enough job in how we market the profession as a whole? I guess, and that's kind of what I'm hearing. I, I think, Reggie, um, I think that, um, again, there's so much negative energy in terms of the national government. People don't trust the national government. Minorities are finding themselves not trusting any, any kind of government anymore, uh, not even the post office anymore. You, right, now, right, right at this current time, you can't trust whether if you sent your, 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 your vote in or your ballot in or your, your mail in, that's going to get where it's supposed to be and because of the United States post office. You can't trust federal agents. Uh, you can't trust, uh, um, you know, government entities that's been uh, fairly solid, whether, regardless of what's been going on, um, you know, in terms of society. And so I think that's driving this whole thing about policing because they are part of the government. They're, they're agents of the government. And so um, to answer your question, whether this just started or, you know, there's always been some doubt, but not as much doubt as there is right now. Right. Well, let me go to Kerry. He says that he, he wouldn't advise his kids right now to join a law enforcement organization. And so I go back to the discussion we had a few weeks ago when you were in that position yourself. And you something happened that caused you to change your mind. I mean, I think we're sort of looking at this kind of parallel, right? The issues that are facing probably your kids or, you know, um, is their issue of the day that would prevent them from going. So. Do you see any, um, any possibility, in the same way that you overcame your objection to joining an agency, that your kids might consider the same thing? I do think that there is the possibility that they would want to choose something like that. And I, and I should be very specific. That is dad saying, I don't want my children to be police officers. I, I think that um, they would both consider it. Um, their mother and their father were both police officers. so. It's what they know, that's what they've seen. They have a heart for that kind of service. Many of the, the traits that you mentioned in terms of millennials and Gen Zers, 
Uh, they do have those traits, plus they're athletic, plus they're strong, they're very smart. All those skills are there. Um, but I do believe that more than ever, the image, as Mo was saying, of law enforcement is at its lowest point. And, you know, as you know, when I joined the police department, it was post Rodney King. And I'm not going to say it's the first example of strife between a community and law enforcement, but I will say it, it, it possibly was the first time that there was kind of a hidden camera view of what police off, policing looked like uh, in the most negative way. Um, so I felt like I could do better. I felt like I could make a change. I don't know that my children feel like they have the ability to make a change in this uh, environment. You know, I was looking at some of the hearings that are going on in the state of Maryland concerning law enforcement and, and the changes to um, the, the community's relationship with law enforcement. And I got to tell you, it is hard to because not only is every elected official that is speaking in these hearings speaking poorly of law enforcement, but then they invite people to come and continue to pile on. So if I'm watching that and I'm just a normal citizen, I'm not getting any balance in that story, nor am I getting any feeling that there's any individual that can come in and make a change. Uh, in terms of what police departments need to do and, uh, to recruit better, uh, and I know we've had this conversation before, but I think agencies and governments might have to take a change, uh, change the way they envision putting their law, police departments together. Um, you know, you can't, you can't put in the exact same type of person to do the, the myriad of jobs that exist within law enforcement. I know when I came on the police department, I'm sure when you all did as well, they were looking for athletes, they were looking for, did you play football? Are you aggressive? Are you strong? You know, that was kind of the prototype. And now we need to be looking at different skill sets, I believe, and plugging them in as the, the analogy I've made before is like a general manager trying to put together a good football team. You can't have a team full of six, five, 320 pound players. That's just your offensive line. You have quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, defensive men, cornerbacks uh, that all have different skill sets. And when you're putting your team together, you should be considerate of all those positions that you have to play, even when you're putting a police department together. One of the challenges that chiefs um, have to face is this issue of um, the image of law enforcement and what do they do? What, what is it that society wants them to do? And when you look at the pillars in the 21st Century Policing Task Force report, the first pillar talks about building legitimacy and trust. And that is probably job number one for every police chief in this country. Because based on what my colleagues just said, and, and I've said this and, and you've said this, you know, law enforcement is under the microscope and it's gonna take community trust and establishing legitimacy for people to want to join such an agency, point number one. Then point number two is, you know, just like Kerry was, was stating, you know, building a team with different skill sets, um, the analogy that he uses is actually, that's actually the way we should be looking at police departments nowadays, because it's going to require different skill sets. It's not all about brain, uh, brawn. 
It's more about what skills can you bring to the table to help solve the problems that society is bringing to your table. I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was listening to the news um, and they were talking about college students coming back to college and they were focusing on the University of Maryland. And one of the things that th there was a, um, a lawyer and an attorney that was speaking on behalf of the um, University Park. They were talking about students partying, et cetera, et cetera, coming back to school. But one of the things that the attorney talked about was immediately engaging the police department to basically read the riot act to these students about partying and in the midst of a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So here you go again, you have an attorney or a citizen or, or somebody pushing law enforcement into that arena. So it seems like, and, and this kind of goes to what Mo was saying, thing is that law enforcement, because we're 24-7, seven days a week, 365, um, holidays, whatever, when everybody else in government is off, police officers are on the front line and they're called for everything. And this is that place where when, when you hear about reform, uh, reforming the police and all this stuff, this is where I think the rubber is going to meet the road because I think what I hear is society saying, we need to reform, we need to reform, we need to reform. Police agencies also need to be saying the same thing. However, they have to meet somewhere in the middle. Another point that Kerry made, I agree with what he said because I've been watching some of these hearings as well on law enforcement and it's so one-sided. You know, it, it just seems like everybody in society is taking this negative approach towards law enforcement. And so, you know, it, it kind of leaves us out because people are, are watching these conference calls and all these meetings and things and they're drawing one image of law enforcement. And there's nobody really speaking up um, for, the, for, the, for the law enforcement officers themselves and really painting a different picture. And then the last point I'll make is this. We sit here and we talk about, you know, what we think law enforcement should do. And law enforcement actually needs to get out of their own way. And they really need to engage people who can market and who can really change their image, help them to change their image. We rely, we put so much on law enforcement to do when in fact that's unfair because they don't have the skill sets to do that. So this is where ch smart chiefs would engage outside experts to help them change their image and then market that along with what the community needs. Last week, um, this issue was raised about uh, the community service officer, um, where you would have individuals who are not sworn law enforcement officers pick up uh, some of the responsibility um, that doesn't require a badge armed uh, person to handle. And I wanted to try to explore that a little bit further. I know there are several agencies around the country, like I, I said, uh, the San Jose uh, Police Department, Colorado Springs, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department um, uh, Office, Minneapolis, Seattle, they all have these community service officers. And so I want to explore that idea a little bit more about that kind of concept in recruiting um, potential candidates uh, in, in the climate that we've just discussed. Uh, Mike, you want to jump in? I've, I've put some thought into it, and I'm kind of on the fence, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. So you send a 
uh, public service officer to mm. handle, uh, let's say, routine things like a, a auto theft report, things like that. At some point, what's going to happen when these PSAs end up being subpoenaed, testifying in court, uh, on criminal trials and things like that, then does that open the door for them to also be viewed as part of the police department and put them at risk going in the neighborhoods unarmed? Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure in a in a broader picture uh, if if I'm on board in that. I'm, I'm I'm right on the fence. Anybody else that concern? Yeah, I th I think that it's a um, it's a great idea that needs further exploration. For example. When we were with Prince George's County Police Department, Prince George's County Police always had what they call a public service aid or the public safety aid. Um, and they did meet, they did the small jobs. They did the things like working at the county administration building, but they wore the uniform that looked like they were police officers. They would do those kind of things, those kind of service things that, you know, that the county um, required where you wouldn't have to pay a police officer to do that, but you had this cadre of community service people or public safety aides or public service officers that could do those kind of things. It also becomes, um, I think you have to think, you know, about bringing young people in um, as police explorers, then maybe migrating them into a public service aide or community service officer. Then it, it gives them, um, some some leverage with the agency and you get to evaluate those people and then but you also get to give them the opportunity to apply to be police officers mm. and and they're already trained in this service sort of mode where i think that it's something what mo was talking about those are real issues that can come up when you talk about people who are not full-fledged police officers commissioned to make arrests or enforce the law or anything like that. You have to really consider what are the ramifications. The one thing I always used to worry about was because they're wearing a uniform, would they be mistaken for a full-fledged police officer? Um, and could they be the target of somebody's ire or could they be the target for a criminal and not able to defend themselves? So there's a lot of aspects to it and I think but I think it's something that really needs to be flushed out um, and it could be the forerunner for future police officers. But Lee you, you just kind of added to my argument that when you talked about using these PSAs as a recruiting ground so now you're saying you're going to send these unarmed folks into these neighborhoods and the community's going to know hey that guy is a future cop. So um, I think that that only adds to the the the, the risk factor, so to speak. Well, I'm going to jump in here, and then Kerry and Mo can jump in. And uh, I I think I I don't share you guys uh, that concern, because right now I've never heard. I know Prince George's County has public service um, aides, but I've never heard a public service aide being attacked because they were wearing a public uh, a uniform. Secondly, we have civilian employees that go, evidence technicians, DNA experts, firearms uh, tool markings experts, they all go to court, they testify on behalf of the department, but they don't come, they, I've never heard one of them being attacked because they're associated with the police department. 
And I think I, I do think though that the parameters would have to be really set up and folks trained well in understanding what their function would be and when they would need to call for a sworn officer if, if they need be. So while I, I know I, 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 yep, there's a possibility, but I'm kind of going, what is the probability? Because most often you're going to, you know, you're going to go. I know things can go from, you know, zero to 60, you know, in no time, depending on the call you're on. But that's why I'm saying you've got to train these folks well so that they can recognize if they're going on a call, let's say that it's just a simple auto recovery that they're going to go take a, a report on that and then something is going on that's going to escalate that call. Then they need to be aware of, you know, their surroundings and what kind of training they have so that they can then call for some other response. So I'm not quite sure that I share the concern just from the standpoint that if they're wearing a uniform and they're a public safety aid that they're automatically going to be a target because we have like again civilians right now that go out and process crime scenes testify in court that that isn't really a concern for but you're talking apples and oranges psa oh. work in the county building mm -hmm. evidence techs work at the crime scene yeah typically surrounded by patrol officers and detectives they're not there by themselves they're not knocking on doors uh, looking for victims, witnesses, et cetera. But I, I'll let the other panelists talk. It's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah I, I think, I, I, I will say, I think Mike's concern is justified. And it, it reminds me of an incident that happened mid-90s, um, Agar Road in Hydesville. I think it was a Kmart or a Zare or something like that. And a corrections officer was going in. At the same time, there was a robbery happening. The, the suspect believed that they were a police officer and shot him because he was in a corrections uniform, which at the time looked similar to a police officer's uniform. So I think your concern is justified. On the other side of the argument though, one of the problems I think that's occurring today or has occurred for the, the history of, or at least our history in law enforcement is that police are often the first resort instead of the last resort. Um, they are called for things that they shouldn't necessarily be engaged in. Um, we have become so comfortable as a community and as a society to whatever the situation might be, hey, let's just call the cops, they'll deal with it. It could be a minor traffic incident. It could be the uh, report for someone broke into my vehicle. It could be a number of, of incidents or issues that don't necessarily rise to the level of armed agents of the government coming to that location to deal with the situation. The other thing is what I perceive as a possibility in this kind of PSA position is you sit in communities and observe and identify problems before they actually rise to the level of law enforcement that you don't have to have, again, armed agents of the government going through communities assertively and aggressively looking for crime. Um, and, you know, I don't know what we're talking about right now is really, we're just brainstorming. We're just trying to think of something that kind of deals with this problem. And there's a lot of holes in this, in this argument that we're making. And I know Mo has some experience in dealing with this kind of hierarchy of, 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 of positions in an agency like this, but you know, I think it definitely deserves some additional observation and study. Wait, before you jump in, Mo, I want to go to something here. <laughs> because I feel like we're 
what we're discussing is our current predicament. Now I'm looking at the, 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 the desirability of law enforcement as a career. We've kind of touched on that a bit. Um, Kerry and Lee has touched on the way law enforcement is being discussed right now, at least by politicians. And, and I guess my takeaway would be sort of law enforcement being, is used as a scapegoat for some of the issues that have been going on mm -hmm. while there's been a, a, a silent contribution by politicians. And I understand Mike's um, argument as well. But aren't we in the same position that we're saying that we're being accused of? in that we've looked at law enforcement in such a way for so long that we're always in this fear that we're gonna be targeted just because of the uniform. So then that sets up a sort of a, a dilemma. How do, you, how do you change that gear where the uniform is seen as part of the community, as part of the problem solving capacity of your community and not as a threat all the time? Mm. Because if we continue down that road where the uniform is a threat, then how do we get out of that loop? So Mama, let you jump in. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I, I, I would ask you guys again to look at the data from police departments and look at the number of calls to service and what they're for. Um, and I would suggest to you that a tremendous amount of those calls are for um, things that can be handled by somebody else other than either an armed police officer or a person that is um, trained to provide certain services. Um, in terms of going in, 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 in uniform, and I've been hearing that all my career, you know, we have to protect this person, that person, because uh, they might look like a police officer. But what's the actual data which suggests that people get harmed because they're, they're wearing a uniform that look like a police officer? How about the crossing guards? How about, uh, uh, you know, the retirees that we have and the cadets? People tend to know. I have not heard a lot about a lot of them um, getting harmed by going into communities and we put them in places where it could be dangerous. I think uh, um, the other thing is that we have to, we don't have a choice right now. We have to shift, create a new paradigm for policing and that paradigm is de-escalation. And I don't think it's going to really change, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't think this is going to turn the corner until a new administration comes into on the national scene because a lot of the stuff that's being promoted from the national level is causing us to have image problems. And so that has to change in order for police to study and say, okay, we're going to look at police different. And I think the public is just crying and saying, okay, we need you, but we need you to do something different than what you're doing because what you're doing is hurting us. And so I feel like, and I think that we can provide uh, a public service worker or a community uh, service officer and create an image that they're there to help. They're not there to in enforce the law. They are connected with the police department, yes, but they're more community policing. When we need the athletes to come in, as Terry would say, when we need them to come in, it's going to be very, very clear. Um, it's going to be uh, an enforcement action and people are going to know that, you know, we're here to enforce the law. People want, and, 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 you know, this is a misnomer. People who are of color, they want to, they want police officers, but they want it to be treated well. They don't want to be singled out. They want, don't want to be beat up. They don't want to be afraid of police officers. What's the, the problem that we're, we're having right now is that it's an us and them mentality. They don't see 
when I say they, I'm talking about my uh, neighborhoods and communities of color don't see the police as a friend. We have to change that. Even if we have to recruit, pay them very, very well. And somebody said, well, I don't know if there's any hope. There is some hope. We've been through this in 1968, and uh, you know, when, when we had serious riot probably and uh, <laughs> Lee, are the only ones that can remember that. But mm -hmm. in, in 1968, the same kind of image. You know, you had the Black Panthers. You had you know, all kinds of stuff going on. The cities were burning, and we've overcome that. Then in the, the 70s, you know, we had the same kinds of things, and we've overcome that too. You know, in the 80s, with Rodney King, we can overcome this, but we have to have strong leadership at the top. We have to have commitment. We have to be sold out on this new model of policing, which is we're here to help. We're not here to hurt. And right now, I suggest to you that the model for this uh, tiered system that we're talking about, again, looks like a triangle. Uh, you got, oh, it should be like this, a pyramid. On the bottom, you got more helpers, which is community service workers, de-escalation, and then mid-level officers that can do moderate stuff. And then at the last tier, you have the acronyms. And that's the way we should be proceeding uh, forward. That's the only way it's going to work. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have this budding effect. We have to become a part of the community. We have to educate the community. We have to integrate ourselves in the things that's going on in the community. Everybody's not a criminal. If, if they were, I, I, I suggest to you, and you've heard this before in your training, so your academy training, there's more community than there is police. So if everybody was a criminal, crooked, robbers, thugs, muggers, the police department wouldn't stand a chance. But most people are decent people. They just want to have police be friends. They just want help. They don't want us to come in and hurt them unnecessarily. Reggie, if I could, I, I respectfully disagree with my panel members. <laughs> you can have all the PSA folks in the world, but when you send in the top of that pyramid and he puts his knee on somebody's neck, mm -hmm nothing is going to change. We brought this problem on ourselves. Th this panel exists because of we brought this on ourselves. But one thing, uh, uh, Mike, is that we all agree, we all agree that that incident and incidents like that, we all can agree that the Rodney King incident, we all can agree that the incident that took place is an anomaly. It should never, ever happen. It should not have happened. As a community of law enforcement officers, of retirees, we have to all say that this is not what policing is about. True. That's a lone ranger. That's true. Yeah, well, I would agree with that, Mo. And I will also agree with Mike. Because I think one of the things that's happening is that law enforcement has been viewed um, at least since we've been involved as the enforcement arm of government. We've sort of toyed, I would say, with community policing. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, it, it, it has been used with the effect that it was intended. But I think in most cases, there wasn't that real community uh, police partnership where priorities were set about how the community police officers were to be used. So I would agree with Mike that we've created this problem ourselves. We, it was beneficial to
to the politicians who wanted a reduction in crime stats. They were wanted you to be tough on crime. They wanted the zero tolerance policies. Um, they uh, wanted, you know, stop and frisk. All those were sanctioned and everybody had this view of law enforcement and uh, law enforcement themselves were too slow in looking outside, looking externally to see what the trends were being, what was happening, and there was a lack of change. And unfortunately, it took a George Floyd incident for the light to be, you know, the spotlight to be on and start asking all these questions, which is where we are now. So I think this is an opportunity for change, but even as we discuss this now, we have to look at it in a different light. We almost have to take this clean break and go, if we had to start anew, what would we be doing? So don't, don't, I'm sorry, Reggie. Oh, go ahead. Uh, and I, no, Reggie and Lee have more experience with community policing than I ever did. But don't you believe that to some degree, community policing ended up being a PR stunt, um, just something that sounded good as opposed to something that was truly invested? You know, it, it, and, and it ended up being just the arm of law enforcement, a piece of law enforcement, as opposed to what is truly intended. It's the foundation of law enforcement. Everything begins with community policing and rises up from there. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it just became a buzzword or PR stunt for, for law enforcement agents to say, we are community police officers, but never true investment in the way that you change the foundation of policing. Well, let, me, let, me, uh, let me jump on that, because I, I can give it to you from both, both sides. I remember when I was a patrol officer, and I think Prince George's County was one of the first agencies to go to community policing. And at the time, you've heard that we referred to community policing officers as social workers with a badge. And I remember when the first auditors came, I got told one day, you're going to go talk to them. And if you say anything that's bad, we're going to have your you-know-what. Fast forward eight years, I'm the community uh, supervisor, community policing supervisor in, in, in a district. And the first thing I did was I took the initial proposal to the Bureau of Justice Assistance and I read through it. And I thought, wow, this could work. But you had to make these, you had to have these little battles because at the time, cops were used, being used as extra bodies on the street narcotics team and they were doing jump outs and you know, which is totally counter to what the function is. So I think there was even within the department, there was a lack of commitment to some degree and understanding of what exactly community policing was about. Right. And then it, across the board, it was implemented sort of uh, not in a consistent, with a consistent strategy, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with um, what Terry just said. I think, you know, community policing did become a buzzword, a buzz thing, you know, for many police departments. If you read Goldstein's book on problem-oriented policing, it really lays out how do communities and police work together to solve problems. From that, spun off community policing. And so many departments and communities embrace the terminology community policing without doing the problem-oriented stuff. Because if you remember, a part of community policing is the SARA model, the scanning, the assessment, the, the, the response, and all of that stuff. 
And a lot of that really got pushed by the wayside. And we say we have a community policing philosophy, but we really don't do the hard work with the communities that need to be done that started off uh, under the, um, the philosophy of problem-oriented policing. I agree with Ter um, Kerry that, you know, a lot of the um, departments really, um, and politicians in particular, and chiefs, made a buzzword out of community policing when, in fact, it, it really moved far away from what Goldstein intended with problem-oriented policing. Let me ask. Let me ask this one question because it would. I think it would tie in all the, th the stuff we've been talking about. Um, because if we're talking about uh, a sort of a tiered level to community, um, a community response uh, to calls for service, we're talking about. Um, I guess depending on the task for community service officers, and I guess we got to probably expand the way we look at that. I, I think. The question goes to the role of education and law enforcement. And layered that, what Lee talked about it at the beginning, where there's so many agencies in the area, um, recruitment is an issue. But um, the federal agencies require a four-year degree and three years of professional experience before you apply. Should we start considering a model like that and then how does that play into the community uh, service officer model that we're talking about? Well, you know, Reggie, um, education has been one of the biggest pieces for me when it comes to law enforcement. Um, one of the reasons I joined Prince George's County is because they had a, back in when I joined in the early 80s, they had a educational incentive program, which paid you extra money if you had X number of college credits. Um, so that was one of the big draws for me because again, going back to living in a metropolitan area, I had my choice of where I wanted to go in law enforcement, but that was a big piece for me. And it also gave me the opportunity to be able to move up the ladder in the department, to be able to do well on promotional exams, to be able to get promoted to the higher ranks, etc. But I also noticed that a lot of departments sort of tend to shy away from higher education for their officers. And I think that is a big um, um, mistake because I really believe that the more education that you can insert into somebody, um, especially when you're dealing with people, when you, when you have to deal with people, when your job is about talking to people and getting information from people and, 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 and the more I think you have on your side academically to help you to engage those skills, I think the better off of an officer that you could be. So that's, you know, always been a, my position. Um, and I really, you know, think that police departments need to rethink that position when it comes to higher education for their officers, because I think there is a, there are a lot of benefits to it. Mike? Yeah, so, so Mike brought up a, Mike brought up a question last time we were talking about education, and I thought, I thought it was a valid point, is you, you, you can have a master's degree from Johns Hopkins or, or someplace like that, or you can have some great self-awareness and awareness about the world. I thought we agreed that the kind of education that we were talking about 
is education where a person who just didn't come out of high school and you know jump into the police department and you gave them a gun. It was about a person that having some level of awareness about its community, some level of awareness about government, some awareness about uh, who people are, um, not just in his community, but in other communities. That's the kind of education that we want. You don't have to be a mathematician, you don't have to be you know, a social worker, but what we do want is we, we want people who we were looking for whose horizons were expanded a little bit so that they understand. So they weren't operating in a silo. And I thought that was a valid point. Yeah. Mike? I, I had a question. So does anyone know what percentage of officers took advantage of the uh, educational benefits that the county offered? Yeah. Um, when, when I uh, joined, um, and, and this was another reason why I joined, there were so many officers back before I joined, I used to go to classes with them because everybody was trying to take advantage um, of this program that the county had. But it went further than that because it was a federal program. It was, um, they used to call it LEA, Law Enforcement Educational something. I can't remember the rest of the term, the um, acronym, but a lot of people were going to school back then. But here's what happened, Mike. Um, probably in 1982, they discontinued the program because um, the federal funding dried up and then the county didn't want to fund it all, all on, on their own. So that eventually dried up. So to give you a percentage, I, I, I couldn't do that. I think it was reintroduced though because I, when I was hired, I, they still they had the education incentive as well. Okay. You, um, you received a, you know, a financial um, bump depending if you had one or two years, three or four years of college. And okay. also there was a, um, a experience um, category as well. If you came from a prior law enforcement, there was a, another um, financial incentive for that. Um, Mike, Mike I, I, I would guess that, um, my guess is that for most police departments, a lot of people didn't take advantage of the educational benefits because they saw policing as their career they felt like they had a line of path to where they're going. And just some people just didn't want to progress. I love what I'm doing. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm doing the rest of my life. I wanted to get an education because I knew I wasn't going to be a police officer all my life. I knew that something was going to change and I wanted to be prepared for it. So to answer your question, I think, and this is anecdotal, that um, uh, a lot of the uh, people who were eligible to take advantage of it did not. You know, those that were progressive, those that wanted to get a, a supervisor or a chief's position or something like that, they did. And, and Mo, that was kind of why I asked. I've seen uh, some larger agencies, whereas from a management perspective, they offered a benefit that they knew they wouldn't have to pay for. So when you offer, uh, you know, college tuition reimbursement and only 5% of your agency takes advantage of it, yeah, you may as well keep it because we don't have to right. pay for it. But on paper, it makes us look good that we're offering something. Right. Well, you know that I I don't have the numbers off the top, but I was looking at a statistic uh, the other day that said of the law enforcement agencies around the country, I think there's only one percent of the agencies that offer um, that require a college degree for employment. So that's not you know there's not that many. Um, and I know even when um, 
uh, you know, Johns Hopkins had their program, um, it was tough finding uh, candidates with a four-year degree to attend a master's program. So I think even within law enforcement, if your criteria is that you're going to have a high school diploma and that's all you needed, um, I think folks probably looked at that as that's probably all I need. And then to get the time to pursue, depending, I think a lot of people can't find the time to continue their education without some form of assistance um, in time off, um, even while they're on active uh, status. You know, I got to say, I will always encourage uh, additional education. I think it's it's always beneficial. I, I truly, truly believe that. And I know how hard it was for me to finish my degree, and I'm a better person for it. But that said, I again go back to the football analogy. I don't think everyone needs to look exactly the same. I, in fact, I think that a police department could probably benefit from having diverse experiences, diverse education levels, um, and diversity all around. Um, those experiences with people encouraged and, and, and motivated to engage problems as they see them within their agency and of course outside in communities, it's, it's also beneficial. And I think, I believe that the more education one has, the more empowered they feel to, to engage in that way. But that said, I don't know that everyone has to have the same experiences, whether it be college, military, uh, sports, athletics, any of those things. Just having a diverse group of people engaging with each other, identifying you know, how to engage the problem of law enforcement is always gonna be beneficial. Yeah, um, I'm gonna uh, just make a, a final point, I think, before we end it. But I agree with Lee, I mean, I agree with you, Kerry, and, um, uh, Mo, I think, uh, and it would go to um, the requirements for uh, candidates. How do they um, demonstrate their diversity of life experience um, th during the recruitment process? And that it's a variety of life experiences um, within and without uh, the community. I think that's, that's the benefit. But I was looking at, uh, there's three, four different studies. I compiled a list of the benefits um, that is associated with a college degree. And it's better skilled in independent decision-making and problem-solving, fewer on-the-job injuries and assaults, more proficient in technology, less likely to be involved in unethical behavior, they're less likely to use force as a first response, less use of sick leave, greater acceptance of minorities and diversity. There's a decrease in authoritarianism, uh, rigidity and conservatism, improved communication skill, better understanding of policing and the criminal justice system, better comprehend civil rights and issues from multiple perspectives. They adapt better to organizational change, have fewer administrative and personal problems, fewer citizen complaints, promotion of higher aspirations, enhancements of minority recruitment, and they better adapted to second career opportunities. Um, so when you look at the benefits, at least of what the researchers say, um, I think there's some benefit to it. And especially if we're talking about this tiered system, I think that depending on the task, because I think it's, it's a different, it's a different um, you know, issue when you're looking at you know, community service officers, police officers, and I wonder whether it should be more task related uh, depending on the, the requirement. 
that's needed. I'm not quite sure that I have the answer for that, but um, I think it's something worth looking at. Yeah. Can I can I can I jump on that? Yeah. You know, to have all those skills that you're talking about and those abilities, we still work in an environment where you discourage people from speaking out. You discourage from people. You discourage people from challenging the system. It's a paramilitary organization that tries to mimic and mock a military organization where you do as I tell you to do and you don't challenge me when I tell you to do it. And we cannot continue to have that type of policing environment when you see so many things that are going wrong. We have to, uh, when I hired someone in the current position I'm in, I sat across from every candidate and said, okay, I, it's nice to hear that you have all those really strong feelings, but what if I'm telling you to do something and you know I'm wrong? Do you have the courage to tell me? This is the actual question I had. Do you have the courage to tell me that I'm making a mistake and to say no to me? Because that's what I need, someone that reports to me to have the courage to tell me I'm doing something wrong because I don't want to mess up. We have to encourage law enforcement officers to be able to look at their peers and even their superiors to say, no, this is the wrong way to go. And here are the reasons why. That's where the education comes from. That's where the education can benefit you because you have critical thinking skills and the courage that, and the ability to articulate why you're saying no. But we have to, you have to encourage that in a policing environment nowadays. It's, it's not, we're not the military anymore. We shouldn't be. Well. I guess that's the hope now, the opportunity for change, and it's across the board. How do you view subordinates? How do you view their role? Um, is it to follow orders or to be a creative um, a thinker and a contributor? So it's a leadership issue as well. So I thank you guys again so much. Um, I think it's a, a important discussion. So uh, thank you. Thank, thank you, Scott. Thank you guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye.